we've been seeing over and over and over again that Jesus' call to choose um, between two paths of life. Either you're going to choose Christ or you're not. You're going to choose uh, the way, a way that leads to eternal life or you're going to choose a way that leads to eternal death. So it's just these choices that Matthew keeps on confronting us with. And last week we started talking about what it means to be his disciple. And <clears throat> over the, the, these verses, it's pretty strong, especially looking at it from our perspective, taking a look at it from uh, a Western civilization or an Americanized Christianity, these words seem extremely strong. For a New Testament believer, not so much. For a believer in some countries, no, th th this is what they live. But for us, it just seems like harsh. Um, but I mentioned that the truths of these scriptures would be true for any period of time, but especially true in our day um, and how significant it is for the church today. And I mentioned that um, subjectivism and relativism are just rampant in our society. And by relativism, I mean the assumption that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There are no absolutes. So pretty much whatever you want to do you know, it's okay that you can't put a truth out there because if it's not true for somebody else, it's just not true. And so the subjectivism means the assumption that in this relativist, relativistic atmosphere, I, the subject, can now choose what is going to be true for me and not true. And so we have that just running rampant in our society and we have it running rampant in the church. Um, so everyone has the right to determine what is good and bad, right and wrong, true and false, beautiful and ugly, and I can make those choices and it doesn't really matter what the scripture says. And so I will see people who will do things that are clearly against the scripture but say, yeah, but it doesn't matter because this is what I want to do. And so they put themselves above God. And that's what is going on. You know, that's sort of what America is like today. Which means it's extremely unpopular to take a stand for Christ. You know, it just becomes extremely unpopular. There's... If you take a strand, stand for any truth, any absolute truth, you'll just be considered a bigot. You'll be considered closed-minded. You'll be considered unloving, uncaring. Uh, but yet, and if you say, no, everything is okay, well, now you're loving, now you're caring, and that's exactly the opposite of what is true according to the Scripture. So that's what we breathe. And that was the, that was going on in the time of Christ. And so Jesus, in Matthew 10, 24 through 42, says, these are the marks of a disciple. If you're going to be a disciple, this is what it's going to look like. And he starts with, started, we mentioned last week, 
the first characteristic of a disciple is a sense of humility. It's not me, it's God. It's not my way, it's going to be God's way. There's a sense that, no, I'm not in charge, God is in charge. The second characteristic I mentioned was that it's a proper fear of the Lord. Instead of fearing humanity, we have a proper understanding, a proper respect, a proper fear of God. And the basic argument that why we don't need to fear other things is because of the goodness and the providence of God and how much he cares for us, that he's concerned about every hair on our head, that he knows what's going on, that he's not some kind of God that just is up there, created everything, and then just said, now you're on your own, work it out, that he actually is involved in our life. Um, and the third characteristic of a disciple is that they confess publicly that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ. That they're not afraid to acknowledge that. And confession of Jesus means to agree with him about who he is. This is who Christ said he was. I agree with that. I believe that. I proclaim that. I'm not ashamed of that. Um, and it's more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. It's the willingness to confess that Jesus is your Lord and continue to do so even in the face of opposition, even when it may cost you. It could cost, in their time, their life. In, in other Christians throughout the world, it can cost them their life. But for us, it may just cause us embarrassment. It may cause us inconvenience. It may cause us a loss of friend. It may cause us possibly even a loss of a job. But usually it's not, we're not going to prison because we proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Um, but then it says, if you're willing to confess me, I'm willing to confess you. But then in Matthew 10.33, it sort of flips the coin and says, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is making this distinction here between those who fear God and those who fear men. Those who fear God and those who are afraid of what men may say or do to them. So instead of following Christ or confessing Christ, they deny Christ. Those who deny Jesus or fail to profess Jesus before men, do it in order to gain their approval. We do it to gain other people's approval instead of the approval of Jesus. Then a fourth characteristic of a disciple is that they value Jesus more than anything else. This is first and foremost. Jesus Christ has to be first and foremost. He's never going to settle for second place. We will put him in second place. We'll put him in third place. We'll put him in fourth place. We'll put him on the bottom of our priorities. But Jesus will never be happy there. He will never be loved there. He will never be professed there. So we may think that we're doing fine, but we're not living a life that God can truly bless when we don't put Jesus first. When we don't put Jesus first. So in verse 34 through 36, it says, you find the theme of opposition to Jesus by the ungodly. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. 
I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. I started to end last week with Jesus Christ is the most divisive person in the world. Now, people don't like to hear that, but the reality is that when God confronts you in, in Jesus Christ and you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus already said, the world hates me. And those who are part of me, the world will also hate. So he's already saying that when you turn your life over to me, you're going to be at odds. You're going to be at odds with society. You're going to be at odds with religion. You're going to be at odds between the unsaved and the saved. There's going to be a division in all those. You see it with the, in, in verses 32 through 34. There is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Between the church and society. Between, in verses 35 and 37. And between the saved and the unsaved in verses 38 through 39. So when we are confronted with Christ, folks, the reality is, is that we're playing for keeps. We're no longer playing church. That we're really playing for keeps. That this relationship demands an accountability. It demands a commitment. I don't know about in your life, <clears throat> but in my testimony of my relationship with you know, before I came to know Christ, I had a bar. I was a bartender. I had a whole set of friends that were over here. And I was real happy. I was, you know, I could hang with them and enjoy them. But when I became a, a Christian, all that changed. All of that changed. When I first became a Christian, I was the loneliest person I knew. I, I, because my whole life was started at 9 o'clock at night. You know, and I, in the bar scene, the party, whatever it was, it started at 9 o'clock at night. In the Christian world, their whole life ended at 9 o'clock at night. You know. And, and but I knew... What Christ brought me out of was so significant that I had nothing in common with my friends anymore. You know, I, the parties were done. Um, I, I became an evangelist. And I didn't become an evangelist out of love for them. This is just honesty. I became an evangelist out of loneliness. I, I went to my best friends. I said, you guys got to come to Christ. <laughs> you know, I can't do this alone. You know, and I, I can remember just going to them and really sharing Christ because of that I, I had lost everything. There was no long, I didn't have anything in common with my family. I didn't have anything in common with my friends. Um, it was just a completely different world. Um, and when you think about the first disciples, 
we think about it, and that's, you know, it's no great big loss. But think about the disciples, what they lost. Careers. They lost families. They were ostracized. Uh, they lost everything. They became separated from their own people. Uh, they became separated from the Jewish race. So a lot of times, if anyone tells you that following Jesus is easy, I'm not sure if that's always true. Uh, for some, it's not easy at all because you've changed your whole focus. Christ is first now, not my desires. Christ is first now, not all these other things that I once was a part of. So we just had nothing else in common. Uh, and as Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So, you know, if the world hates you, it's, okay, remember that the world hated Christ first. This is why Jesus states in verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Um, when Jesus came the first time, he came to pay the penalty for our sin. And when he came to pay the penalty for our sin, and we came believers, now we entered into sort of a divisive relationship with almost everything else. It's when Jesus returns the second time that we will finally have peace, true peace. Until that time, there will be always division among humanity between those that will follow Jesus and those that will not. And if there isn't some kind of tension, if there isn't some kind of tension, it's probably because the Christians are not really living for Christ as much as they're living to be appeased or to appease society. And that doesn't mean we have to be offensive. It doesn't mean that we have to just be out there being obnoxious. But it means inside of us, we recognize there's certain things that are going on that we just can't do anymore. That we just can't fit. Because it doesn't work. And unfortunately, in our culture, we don't take that kind of stand in a lot of areas. And I'm not talking just about society as a whole. But even check the things you watch on TV. Check the things that you listen to. And how beneficial are they to your spiritual, relational, emotional life? I, you know, somebody said, I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable the statistics that are coming out now in regards to pornography and how many people are um, watching it, observing it, how it's affecting work. The company that, one of the companies I work with as a chaplain has asked me to do a presentation on social media and pornography in the workplace. And this is just a small company, but they already know it's affecting them. Um, and yet, it's just prevalent, and we're not protecting our minds, we're not protecting our eyes, we're not protecting our hearts. We're just thinking, that's no big deal. And the reality is, it is a big deal. Verse 37 then goes on, and this is where it even gets harder. Um, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Basically, he's saying when a choice has to be made, are you going to follow God? Or are you going to follow people, whether even, even if it's family, who are against God? Choice always has to be Christ. That's what has to come first. Um, that may not be big, that much big of a tension here. But I can remember, and I think I shared this last, last week, there was a friend of mine who came to Christ and his family was almost disowned him and they weren't, you know, they just weren't. I mean, they didn't have any faith experience, but they could not believe that a child of theirs would need Christ because their family took care of everything. And so they just couldn't believe that anybody could need Christ. And so they just sort of rejected him. Um, Jewish girl who, you know, went, went, went to go back home and they said, you're not our daughter. You died to us when you became a Christian. So those things do happen. Um, and so again, the call to follow Christ does not end with just that you must love Christ above anyone else. You must also love Christ above yourself. Verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There's a world of difference between falling in love with Jesus and staying in love with Jesus. And there's a bunch of people that will fall in love with Jesus and have an emotional high, have an emotional moment. But staying in love with Jesus is a whole different ballgame. There's a whole bunch of people that fall in love with another person, but staying in love with that person for 50 years, that's a whole other ballgame. And that's the same thing with Jesus. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes a desire to stay in love. It takes practice. It takes something that we need to be intentional about. And how quickly does any relationship go south when you don't spend time working on it? When you don't spend time communicating, when you don't spend time intentional, when you don't spend time you know, sharing with one another? Same thing with Jesus. If we're not in a prayer life, if we're not spending time in his word, if we're not spending meditating, if we're not just worshiping him, the, the relationship's going to go south, folks, just as any other relationship that we have will go south. I can share testimonies from people in this room who shared with me how they came to Christ and they had this wonderful experience and then they sort of neglected it for a period of time and it went south but then they came back and re reignited that it's true in every area of our life and so if we want that kind of relationship with christ it takes work now if you don't that's okay but just be honest about it just say you know what I tell people that I want that close relationship with Christ, but obviously all my behaviors indicate that I really don't. And so just be honest about it. Instead of blaming God for a lack of spiritual enthusiasm. And sometimes that's what we do. Um, now the, the idea of taking up a cross to follow is an idea that the disciples would have quickly realized We've romanticized it. We have a problem child. 
We have a problem parent. We have a problem spouse. We have a problem job. We have a problem anything. And we say, oh, I guess that's my cross to bear. You know, that would have never flown with the disciples. That would have not. Their, uh, only a few years before, a zealot named Judas, who had been fighting against the Romans, had been caught. And in order to teach the Jews a lesson about fighting Rome, General Verus ordered the crucifixion of over 2,000 Jews. Their crosses lined the roads of Galilee from one end to the other. So when a Jew heard the word cross, they did not think of Jesus' love for us. They didn't think that there's some kind of reminder um, something to be made into a piece of jewelry to wear to say I'm a Christian or a symbol to be used uh, to adorn places of worship so where we have the crosses. That, that meant something completely them. They did not even think of it as having trials in life. They thought of only one thing when they thought of the cross. Death. Death because we are believers. A cross was the instrument by which Romans executed people who opposed them or the system of law that they had established. So too often we talk about bearing our cross, referring to an inconvenience in our life. But even if that cross bearing was referring to genuine physical suffering because of religious persecution, it would not have the same meaning as to what Jesus says here. Because for them, it could mean death. And so Jesus is calling for those who will follow him to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in his service. For the disciples, it meant death. Now that is such a foreign concept for us. It's just almost appalling. But Andrew Brunson, who's been in prison in Turkey for 16 months, for being a Christian, it, it has a whole different meaning. And so his, he's in jail, was in jail, he's now on house arrest, but while he was in jail, on his last court date, he went up before the judge. And his statement was, and it wasn't in the Turkish press, and it was and not even supposed to be mentioned, because all the communication that I've been receiving from the EPC, we're not supposed to be able to communicate it publicly out of fear. But because he's been put in house arrest, but when he stood before the judge, he said, I just want to forgive all those who have persecuted me and put me in jail because I am proclaiming that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Now, that just... Okay, we'll think you'll go back to jail and we're going to postpone your trial for another six months. And in the midst of him having that trial postponed for another six months, uh, pressure from the United States government was put on so that he was now put in house arrest. Um... But he has suffered tremendous physical pain and physical illness as he has been in prison proclaiming Christ.
to the people in prison. Not much different than Paul. In prison, proclaiming Christ. I don't have ever anticipated in the United States we'll suffer those things. We may say, oh yeah, you know, media is against us, or this is against us, or that's against us, and that must be the cross we bear. No, not at all. Not in comparison to what other believers are going, on, going through throughout the world. That may seem pretty radical, and in a sense it is, but the perfectly logical, take a look at verse 39. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Um, the sense of life here really means yourself. And so, again, we have a whole society that is out there trying to find themselves. I got to find myself. I got to find, you know, and, and they're on this search, and there's tons of books written about finding yourself. I was talking to a person this week that said, I have to understand this. I have to find myself. I go, help me to understand why you have to find yourself. Because where are you going to be after you find yourself? I don't, I'm still here. I found myself. Uh, why don't you find Christ? Amen. Find Christ. Because you can find yourself, and as Solomon said, it will still be all vanity. But when you find Christ, you have life. And so as people are looking to find something, they're completely turning away from Christ. Um, Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Aka Indians in South America, said, and I know that many people have heard this quote. It's probably the most famous quote out of his book. He is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot have or lose. He is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When we give up of ourselves and hold on to Christ, we can't keep ourselves, but we'll never lose Christ. So, um, so we can't keep our life, but we can exchange it for something that we can never lose. A life with meaning, a life with purpose, a life that is eternal, and a life with our Savior for eternity. So he's given us these unbelievably strong warnings and demands and saying, this is what it really means to be a disciple of mine. Are you going to sign up? Are you, are you going to be a, a fan or are you going to be a follower? But after those instructions, he changes completely and promises rewards to those people who not only are disciples, but those who receive his disciples, who receive prophets, who receive the other people, who receive his people. And he promises to give these rewards. So in verse 40, Jesus identifies with us and connects us with God. He goes, he who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives me who sent me. He goes on to say, he who receives a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of righteousness shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Folks, this is of verses on hospitality. 
These are verses on what it means to live a gracious life to other people. To summarize these verses, any service done to any of God's people in Jesus' name amounts to service to him and it will be rewarded. Why should we do the things that we do to care for others? Not because it just feels good, because it presents Jesus to them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, The bearers of Jesus' word receive a final word of promise to their work. They are now Christ's fellow workers and will be like him in all things. Thus they are to meet those to whom they are sent as if they were Christ himself. So as we go into our workplace, as we go into our homes, as we go into the community, we are presenting Christ. That's hospitality. When you love others as Christ loved you and you present Christ to wherever you are, that is true hospitality. We bring Christ to the places we go. Whether it be in church, at work, on the football field, in the sporting event, wherever it may be, we're bringing Christ to them. So it's out of Christ's love that we offer this hospitality. And when we bring Christ, not only we bring Christ, we bring God the Father. And if we bring in God the Father, it means we're bringing forgiveness and salvation and life and blessing because that's what we represent. Um, now, most of us probably don't find it too difficult to bring, to be hospitable to our family and to our friends. Um, in fact, most people have this sense of mutuality if I'm with a bunch of Presbyterians, I feel comfortable. If I'm with a bunch of Methodists, I feel a bunch. We'll feel comfortable. If I'm with a bunch of people in the bar, I mean, you know, wherever we hang out, we feel comfortable with that group of people. And it's not as easy to get outside of our comfort zone and invite somebody else who's not a part of what we normally think or do, and invite them to be a part of what we're doing. Um, you know, so how often do we think about hospitality to the stranger? The neighbor two doors down, not just next door. The person on the assembly line that speaks a different language. Uh, the person with special needs. How well do we do with hospitality? It's even here, folks. You can watch it on a Sunday morning at times. Um, we walk in. We, get, we gather with the people that we normally gather with, and it's not always easy to just reach across the room and look at somebody else and say, oh, by the way, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? I mean, how, it's, that's just how we are as humans. And Christ said, no, you need to break out of some of those patterns. Um, because isn't that what Christ did? He broke out of those patterns Christ is the hospitality of God towards us. Think about that. Christ is the hospitality towards us. He invites all of us from all languages and cultures to his great banquet feast, which none of us deserve and which none of us can repay. That was God's gift to us. That was God's hospitality to us. I'm giving you Christ who's going to invite you 
into the great banquet. Christ is, hospi Christ is God's hospitality towards us and that God gives himself fully to us in his son Jesus Christ. But God doesn't only give himself fully to us, he also fully receives us. Fully receives us. Accepts us as we are. Church growth experts say that a healthy growing church is one that is generally friendly and that they offer hospitality to others. They are churches that live by the principle that there are no strangers here, only friends that we have not met. The whole purpose of having the backyard barbecues is for that reason. Is for that very reason. That there are no strangers here. Just friends that we haven't met. And so our desire is that everybody in this church, in fact that we have 120% of the people that are part of this church at a backyard barbecue. So that it's we're connecting, that we're saying this, this is exactly what Christ told us to do. And so if you haven't signed up, folks, please, for the name of hospitality, for the name of, of what it means to be a body of believers to one another, sign up. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. That's probably the most guilt I've put on anybody in a long time. Um, <laughs> that's all. Just, just do it. You know, do like, do like the Nike. Just do it. Um, sign up. Fill out. Uh, there's a blue card. What is that blue card? Is that the registration card? Oh. Um, just fill it out. And if you haven't signed up to be in a, um, a backyard barbecue, I knew it was going to come. Um, <laughs> go ahead and just sign up. And don't be afraid. And somebody will call you and invite you. And if we, if we need more hosts, we'll call you and ask you to be a host also. Um, but that's what, what, we're, what we're supposed to do. Christ gave himself fully to us, and we are to give ourselves fully to others. Lyle Scheller, Lyle Scheller who was a church growth expert in the 60s, 70s. that be right, 60s, 70s? Um, wrote, and this was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, so it's a little bit dated, but the principle is true. He said, the most influential question that you can be asked of a visitor's first time is, would you like to come home with us for dinner? Okay? Jeremy is here. He's a first-time visitor. Why? Not, not actually. He's a first-time return visitor. Um, but not only welcome him to sit at our table, but, you know, for the Slinkmans to take him out for, for lunch. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, but the point is, that's, that's the hospitality. Now, he would say, Shaler would say, invite him home. We don't invite people to our homes after church usually anymore. It's like you want to go out to mothers or you want to go to a restaurant. Um, but the point is, that's the hospitality. See, to be faithful disciples, we need to push the boundaries of what we find comfortable and easy. We have to challenge ourselves if Christ really is first. And I'm not. 
What things do I need to do that are different to show that Christ really is first and foremost? We also need to remember that in this church we're not alone. We are a team. The church is a symphony rather than a series of solo recitals. We're doing this together to, to be a church that others can look at and say, they get it. They get it when they understand what it means to reach out and to give a cup of cold water to somebody. To care for people who are different. To, to love people and that they're not all the same. That they're, they're different and they've come together to be a light for Christ. When we do that, we are a blessing to others. We are also blessed. And many people will wait a lifetime to do something great for God. Instead, that if they just did little things, giving cups of cold water to people on a daily basis, that would be what's important. Because the size of a loving deed is not what is important. It's the heart of what is done, how that loving deed is done. And then, and finally, it's also important to notice that our text says, any small kindness, any small kindness, any small kindness done in the name of Jesus Christ will never, never, never go unrewarded. So it's not the big ones. Any small kindness, will, when it's done for Christ, will not go unrewarded. Many people claim to be Christians. Many people claim to be followers. Many people claim to be disciples. But the proof is in the pudding. How do we live our lives? A person who has truly put their faith in Christ and says, you know what, I want Christ first and foremost. Life will be different. They may fail at times, um, but their lives will be generally marked by characteristics as humility and wanting to be like Christ. They will fear God more than man. They will confess Jesus publicly. They will value Christ more than family and friends and even one's own life. They will show hospitality and they will live a blessed life in Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. And I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you. And Lord, we ask that you continue to minister to each and every one of us that we truly can understand what it means to be a church that understands what it means to be hospitable to one another, to reach out, to care, to share for one another. And that, Lord, not only for one another, but when that we have the ability to take that hospitality the gift of you to others. So, Father, continue to minister to each of us as we go forth to minister to others. And all God's people said...